0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. In Australia, someone found a pigeon with a tag like a racing band on his leg that identified the pigeon as being from Alabama. What's going on here? Well, you should know that Australia has strict quarantine regulations on bringing live animals or birds into the country in order to prevent diseases from spreading on the arid continent. So in order to protect Australia's unique wildlife, the country's agriculture department said that the bird should be destroyed. Okay, so it was thought that this racing pigeon, and I'm going to talk about racing pigeons in a minute, traveled 8,000 miles from the United States over the Pacific Ocean to Australia, and it needed to be destroyed because it breached the country's strict biosecurity rules. But later, it was determined by Australia's Department of Agriculture that the blue racing band indicating that the bird came from the United States was fake, and this bird is likely to be an Australian bird. The group Pigeon Rescue Melbourne posted on Facebook the following, We believe he is not an American pigeon at all, rather an Australian pigeon wearing a knockoff American ring that anyone could buy off eBay. The Department of Agriculture said following an investigation, the department has concluded that Joe the pigeon. Oh, I forgot to tell you that the pigeon was named after Joe Biden, our president, that Joe the pigeon is highly likely to be Australian and does not present a biosecurity risk. Here's a statement from the American Pigeon Racing Union. They said, What a relief to know that Joe the pigeon found in Australia does not wear a genuine racing band. The pigeon found in Australia sports a counterfeit band and need not be destroyed per biosecurity measures because his actual home is in Australia. It is a disappointment that false information spread so quickly, but we are appreciative that the real pigeon did not stray from the United States. So, as you can see, the pigeon sparked a big debate in Australia, including a lot of politicians who waded into the pigeon debate, like, what are we going to do with Joe? Do we kill him, not kill him, put him in quarantine so he's not a flight risk? Ha ha. The guy who found the bird said to one of the TV networks in Australia, my wife named him Joe. She was going to call him Donald, but we thought that might not be politically correct, so she called him Joe instead. So Joe the pigeon was set free, free as a bird. Okay, so what's a racing pigeon? This is from Wikipedia about pigeon racing. Pigeon racing is the sport of releasing specially trained homing pigeons, which then return to their homes over a carefully measured distance. The time it takes the animal to cover the specified distance is measured and the bird's rate of travel is calculated and compared with all of the other pigeons in the race to determine which animal returned at the highest speed. Pigeon racing requires a specific breed of pigeon bred for the sport, the racing homer. While there is no definite proof, there are compelling reasons to think the sport of racing pigeons may go back at least as far as 220 AD. The sport achieved a great deal of popularity in Belgium in the mid-19th century. The pigeon fanciers of Belgium were so taken with the hobby that they began to develop pigeons specifically cultivated for fast, flight, and long endurance called voyagers. From Belgium, the modern version of the sport and the Voyagers, which the Flemish fanciers developed, spread to most parts of the world. Once quite popular, the sport has experienced a downturn in participants in some parts of the world in recent years, possibly due to the rising cost of living, aging fanciers, and a severe lack of public interest. Hypersensitivity pneumonitis is also a reason why some people are leaving the sport. Of course, they're not leaving the sport for animal ethical or animal cruelty reasons, which I'm going to talk about in a second. Hypersensitivity pneumonitis, by the way, is a real thing among these bird fanciers. In fact, there's a term called BFL, or bird fancier's lung, which is inflammation, swelling, and scarring of the person's lung tissue, making breathing difficult. And this disease is triggered by exposure to these avian proteins present in the dry dust of the droppings and sometimes in the feathers of the birds. So this can lead to irreversible lung damage and at that point there's really no cure or treatment, hence irreversible. So this sport of pigeon racing, well let me first say that animal activists would argue that this is far from a sport and it's just another way we abuse and exploit animals. In the races The trained homing pigeons are driven hundreds of miles away from their coops and then released. The bird that flies home the fastest wins. And there's just so many things wrong with this activity, including many of the racers. The racers are the breeders of these birds, right? Many of them don't know how to properly care for the birds. The racers, the breeders, routinely kill underperforming birds in a practice called Calling, just like other animals used in racing or fighting, right? They do the same thing in horse racing and dog racing and dog fighting. They keep breeding the animals and they keep the best ones and they kill the rest. And you can imagine the horrible ways these birds, the underperformers, are killed, including gassing, drowning, decapitation, whatever. It doesn't matter to the racers because to them, this is a sport and the animals are simply disposable. These birds are raised in captivity. Birds should be wild, just like any and all wild animals should remain wild. Just like the big cats and the primates and the elephants. They don't belong captive in our zoos. Pigeons don't belong captive in cages. And it always boils down to the same theme. This is just another way we exploit animals for human profit and entertainment. And because the birds are raised in captivity... The birds are not prepared or taught to survive in the wild. And they're forced to race in all weather conditions, like really bad weather, when pigeons would not be out and about in the natural real world. So many pigeons fall prey to predators. They starve or die due to bad weather conditions or from trying to drink salt water because they don't know how to survive in the wild. It's been said that only 40% of pigeons that are raced survive. Anyway, the high- physical demand placed on the birds kills hundreds of thousands of these birds. Of course, the racers would say, oh, that's not true. And, you know, we really love the birds and we care for them. You know, just like the puppy mill owners and dog breeders. Oh, we do this because we love dogs. In October of 2020... PETA penetrated racing organizations in which a quarter of a million dollars is bet on a single race and discovered that pigeon racing generates an estimated $15 million a year in illegal gambling proceeds and involves felony violations of federal gambling, racketeering, and tax evasion laws. So get this, the American Racing Pigeon Union which is like the national umbrella group for these pigeon racing groups. You know, it's like the AKC being the umbrella group, so to speak, for the dog breeders. The American Racing Pigeon Union, they declined to comment when asked about these investigations, which found that races in some states, which were organized by the American Racing Pigeon Union, were associated with gambling. Oh, we're not going to comment about that. If they don't comment about it, or if they don't even deny it, can we just assume the gambling is taking place? Illegal bracketeering enterprise? I, I would say so. PETA contends that thousands of birds are killed in pigeon racing, and the offspring of a winning pigeon can be sold for several thousand dollars. And of course, you know, Peter, pigeons were widely used as communication tools around the world. Pigeons were used extensively by the European and American military during the World Wars. This is interesting. Did you know that Reuters, you know, Reuters news agency, operated a live telex service using homing pigeons? Paul Julius Reuter was born in 1816. He's the founder of the Reuters news agency. According to Reuters news, In April, 1850, Julius Reuter started a news and stock price information service using carrier pigeons between Brussels and Aachen, Germany, using 45 trained birds. There was a telegraph gap of 76 miles between Brussels and Aachen. The birds were sent each day by rail to Brussels and then flew back to Aachen with the information. Their flight only took two hours which is much quicker than by rail, and it worked well. This continued until the telegraph gap was closed in the first quarter of 1851. Anyway, this was long before pigeon racing became a thing. The first official pigeon race took place in the United States in the 1880s, and it remained popular until about the 1950s. And then it gradually declined for the reasons I stated earlier, including the lung disease these breeders would get. But pigeon racing still occurs across the country. This Reuters piece, which is September ninth, 2009, it shows a picture of a carrier pigeon, and the caption reads, this is fascinating, Winston, an 11-month-old carrier pigeon, is seen beside a memory card in Durban, that's in South Africa, September ninth, 2009. A South African information technology company on Wednesday proved it was faster for them to transmit data with Winston the pigeon than to send it using which is the country's leading internet service provider. So transmitting data via carrier pigeon was faster than using the country's leading internet service provider. And it goes on, internet speed and connectivity in Africa's largest economy are poor because of a bandwidth shortage, and it's also expensive. Fascinating. So there you go, probably more than you wanted to know about pigeon racing. Okay, more with animals today right after the break.
1: Most people know that chocolate is dangerous for dogs and cats to eat. But did you know that coffee and tea are dangerous for pets too? There are many foods you should not let your pets eat. Onion, garlic, yeast dough, and even avocado. Grapes and raisins are especially toxic to dogs too. Even certain plants and flowers can be toxic or deadly to pets. Cats should not be allowed to eat lilies, daffodils, tulips, or sago palm. And make sure your dogs don't eat azalea, lilies, or sago either. Another danger area, especially with dogs, is eating medicine meant for people. So make sure pills are out of your pet's reach and in safe containers. And of course, leftover bones can crack and cause choking. So don't give bones to dogs. Remember these pet safety tips to keep your pets healthy and happy all year round. This message is brought to you by Advancing the interests. Of animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org.
2: Welcome back. You may or may not know there is or was a Los Angeles Police Department Animal Cruelty Task Force. Bob Ferber, our colleague, he was involved in getting this going and served as an important member of this task force for a long, long time, and he has just published an article, a letter, called No Happy New Year for Animals in City Watch LA um, about the attempt to disband this very important task force. Bob, welcome back.
3: Thank you, Peter.
2: Bob, thanks for bringing this to our attention. Uh, Why don't you tell us about what's happened right now and then the origins and of this task force.
3: Okay. Well, it was a couple of months ago, shortly after the city council, uh, reduced the LAPD budget for, you know, probably in response to a lot of different factors, uh, social forces going on, whatever, uh, the police chief, chief Moore announced abruptly and unilaterally that he was disbanding the special animal cruelty unit. And, uh, it has remained that way uh, and has stubbornly refused to reinstate it, and uh, that's it. Uh, this is a unit that was created about 18 years ago, and it was formed by me and a coalition of other people in government and, act- and animal activists. And uh, it actually, Peter, was came about when I realized as an animal cruelty prosecutor that dogfighting and cockfighting was actually almost legalized in the sense that nobody was investigating these crimes. I had gotten a call about 18 years ago from an insider saying, I know where a dogfight is going on in South Central LA. My ex-boyfriend's doing it. And she knew I was a rescuer as well as an animal cruelty prosecutor. And I said, well, did you report it? She said, yeah. I said, well, what did they say? Well, they said they don't do that. And they said LAPD said call animal control. And animal control said call LAPD. And I said, really? Oh, okay, well, let me try. And I had a lot of connections, Peter, in LAPD and animal control. And I got the same response. Each agency said the other one does it. And it was astonishing. Mm. In, at that time, uh, nobody was responding to these kinds of brutal crimes, uh, bloody, bloody, I hate to call it a sport, but it, it, they call it a blood sport. And it turns out that actually in the manual for the city animal services and the LAPD manual, Peter, they, each one said the other agency is responsible for the crime. Yeah. Yeah. So it effectively legalized probably the cruelest, if not one of the most, cruelest forms of animal cruelty in the world.
2: Now, why would animal control not be interested in uh, presenting themselves when they get a a tip like this? I mean, you you would think it would be their job.
3: Animal control officers individually are interested in it. The problem is that they're not equipped for it. Animal control is, 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 is well equipped to show up at a house when there's a dog in the backyard chained up, a dog without food or water. Uh, crimes like that, uh, even you know, a dog, whatever, not getting the proper care, uh, involving usually one individual pet owner. Dog fighting and cockfighting are large criminal operations involving a lot of people. They're usually well planned in advance, especially the cockfighting. Uh, many of the people involved are, have weapons, have, have warrants out for their arrest. They have criminal records. Many people don't know this, but animal control officers in L.A. city and county don't have weapons. And they have limited police powers, but they're not equipped to deal with violent crimes or violent individuals. And so not just in L.A., but throughout the country, there's a general consensus that... Police have to take at least this form of animal cruelty. They have to take responsibility for it. And it has been a slow process. And uh, I'm proud to say that back 18 years ago, uh, I brought this matter to the city council. And, in fact, I held up the manuals to the two agencies and, and to the council's shock. I said, we have legalized brutal blood sports against animals in Los Angeles. We need police officers, and we need police officers that are doing nothing else, that are not just putting it at the bottom of a list of long crimes because police are overwhelmed. They, investigating crimes is backlogged on a daily basis. And uh, when I went to the city council asking for one police officer, uh, to my surprise, they said, no, we're going to give you two detectives. And that was the beginning of the LAPD Animal Cruelty Unit. It was the first of its kind in the country. And after that, the city attorney's office, the district attorney's office, and animal services, we all joined together with LAPD and created the very first unit of its kind called the L.A. Animal Cruelty Task Force, Hmm. specially trained prosecutors, animal control officers and police detectives whose only job was to go after animal cruelty, no matter what other pressures there were in the system to deal with this crime, that crime, something else. These, these people, and I was one of them, we had the luxury of only handling animal cruelty crimes. And it became a model for cities around the country, even cities in other countries, have drawn from our experience, including Italy and Greece, where they also have similar animal cruelty task forces. And it directly came from learning what we did in L.A. So 18 years ago, we were pioneers. We set the new standard for handling animal cruelty. The animal control officers were there to provide expertise about animals, animal behavior, to deal with situations that may not require armed police officers or large numbers of police. And the police officers were there to join with animal control to to provide the backup and to be able to investigate these much more dangerous crimes. And then it went to special prosecutors. And, uh, and just so you know, Peter, uh, at the beginning, judges laughed at us. They thought that these crimes were just, you know, this is just a dog. This is just a cat. But through a combination of graphic photos, a lot of educating of the judges and the fact that LAPD had taken it on, that that was a symbolic gesture that had really weighed heavily with judges that. Well, if they take it as a real crime as opposed to animal control, then this must be something I have to take seriously. Yeah. And the uh, the strongest argument I used to succeed in court was reminding judges the well-established principle that people who are hurt animals hurt people. Yeah. And I would tell judges that even if you don't like animals, you don't have a pet, that's not Needed. Uh, If you care about people, you have to care about animal cruelty. And it was very successful.
2: We'll be right back. And when we return, we'll ask Bob what we can do to help reverse this decision. You're listening to Animals Today.
4: For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to raising public awareness of dog and cat overpopulation through ISAR's Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com.
2: Welcome back. Bob Ferber, former Los Angeles animal cruelty prosecutor, is with us. And he is telling us about the shuttering of the animal cruelty task force in Los Angeles. So now we've got Chief Michael Moore. He's pretty new to the job. And we are in a you know, bizarre time of uh, budget cuts and social unrest. And uh, he just comes out and says, uh, no mas.
3: Just like that. It was a shock to everybody, including city council members. Nobody expected it. The odd thing is that he also disbanded and is in the process of disbanding some other units involving special victims, human victims. And I just got off the phone with one L.A. city councilman yesterday who said that he and his staff were just blown away by it. They they never expected that. When I asked him if this was a personal retaliation against the reduced funding of LAPD, uh, he said he didn't know. He said that he thinks it probably plays a part in it, that there's an emotion. the, The chief had a very strong emotional reaction when the city council reduced some of his funding. What he said, the rational reason why he was doing this, is that he needed more cops on the street. But, Peter, that's kind of ironic and a little dated, as the councilman pointed out to me, That were, there was a big push years ago to get more police on the street. But what's happening now, that's not what's happening now. And as everybody in this country knows, observing, this, as you pointed out, social unrest, there's a push to not have so many cops on the street, to have police officers involved in more alternative ways of handling social problems, including the mentally ill. And a lot of it is taking the funding away from the police to put it with experts that know how to approach a mentally ill person or a homeless person. And so what the chief is doing is not just undoing a a special unit that's needed, but his rationale makes no sense because the council is not asking for more people on the street. They're asking for special attention to special victims. But it's very difficult, if not impossible, to force a police chief to do what we want, what crime we want them to enforce. And you and your listeners have heard us talk about that before, that just because the law is on the books doesn't mean it's enforced. But in this case, we have a crime that isn't it's not just being sort of put at the bottom of the list, but a felony crime which is essentially legalized now in Los Angeles because of Chief Moore's, uh, you know, total failure to appreciate how important these units are. I might add, Peter, that one of the main purposes of a special unit is to make sure that the victims of that crime get the right treatment and the right attention, no matter what financial pressures there are. The purpose of a special unit is to isolate them from from budget cuts, to insulate them from efforts to reduce budgets, to eliminate personnel, because these are victims that are usually not given the attention they need. And that we're talking about the elderly, abused children, and animals. And in many cases, uh, victims that are victimized on the street, homeless, and other types of victims. So these units are designed so that when there are budget cuts, these victims, like animals, still get the attention they need. And it's been a constant effort, lifelong effort, to remind everybody in government that victims like animals uh, need special protection. So for the chief to do this is, Use the expression, but ask backwards, Is goes against everything, uh, the momentum that's going on in the rest of the country, and, and defies logic. It, it shows the police chief seems to have a profound misunderstanding of what the purpose of these units is and what the, the people want. I mean, it's hard for me to believe that if you did a poll in L.A. that people would say, well, you know, we don't need... To, to enforce animal cruelty laws. I, I'd be really hard-pressed to find people that would believe that. So that's where we're at now, and I wrote that that piece to comment on it. Uh, I'll tell you, Peter, that I, it, I agonized over that. Having retired in 2013, it's these kind of issues that, you know, raised my blood pressure, gave me a lot of stress, and there was a point after 33 years that I said, you know, I have to – Pass the baton on to somebody else. But when I read this if, a couple of months ago, after losing sleep for weeks about this, I thought I can't let this go. And when the happened, when the new year came, I just it hit me one night that oh my god, people are celebrating that 2020 is over. There's a, a, a new face in Washington. There's a vaccine on the on the horizon, and yet animals are going to suffer more than ever in 2021.
2: Bob, briefly then, what can listeners do to uh, get a message to the police chief or to uh, voice their displeasure with this decision?
3: I would say at this point, we're we're working behind the scenes with some wonderful people in the city council to see what we can do. I would say at this point, Councilman Paul Koretz, K-O-R-E-T-Z, is one of the most animal-friendly legislators in the country. Paul is our go-to person for animal issues. Uh, What I would suggest at this point is if people want to get involved is to send an email to Councilman Paul Koretz. You can simply go online and find it, L.A. City Councilman Paul Koretz, and simply let him know that you're aware of his love for animals and you hope that he can do something, that you're outraged by this, and that you demand a restoration of this Unit And that you are, you know, that you want to help and that you support the councilman in whatever he can do. Uh, I think that's the best thing at this point. Okay. Uh, I, I've already gotten responses from friends and the common denominator in all the emails is outrage and disgust. And those are that's how I felt, and so if people are outraged and disgusted by this, let the city councilman know not because he's opposed to it, but because this we can use this as ammunition. You can also do the same thing is send this to Chief Moore and send it to l a p d and let him know that you're outraged that this is and that no matter where you live, any wherever your listeners are in the country. Animal abuse knows no borders. Uh, it doesn't matter where you live, even if you're on the East Coast, or, or you have a right to complain and to speak out when animals are abused, re- regardless of where it is. And so uh, the chief needs to hear that this he can't do this without consequences that police, that people are watching. So those are the two ways. A very positive letter of support to Councilman Paul Koretz, and uh, an emotional letter expressing how you feel to Chief Michael Moore at
2: LAPD. Very good. Bob Ferber, thanks very much.
3: You're welcome.
0: Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today. Do you ever wonder what you can do to be nicer to animals and to help them? Here are a few things you can do to show your appreciation to our furry friends. You can donate to or volunteer at your local animal shelter, Walking the dogs and playing with the cats is a meaningful way to make a difference in the lives of homeless animals in our shelters. You can be a foster parent if you have the extra time and space. Becoming a foster parent is a wonderful way to take some of the burden off our overcrowded shelters by giving an animal a loving place to live until a forever home is found. Increase your appreciation for wildlife by providing a welcoming space around your home for butterflies, hummingbirds, and other creatures. Also, by simply driving cautiously through areas populated by wildlife such as deer, you're acting with compassion. These are only a few ideas to encourage you to continue thinking about acting kindly towards animals. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit us at aianimals.org, that's aianimals.org. And here are a few more ways to be kind to animals, beginning with this. Report suspected animal abuse or neglect if you see an underfed dog or an animal left in a car on a hot day report it right away you can be saving a life try a vegetarian or even better a vegan diet even just beginning with one day a week decreasing and then eliminating your consumption of animals is probably the best way to show your appreciation for them and for the environment too don't buy cosmetics or household products that have been tested on animals that's easy these days and there are apps to guide your purchases and finally Don't wear clothing made from animals. Say no to fur and leather, and then you can give up wool and silk as well. It's easier than you might imagine. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit us at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. The pandemic has changed the way we spend our time and money, and this has undoubtedly trickled down to our pets. But what does the data actually say? Home Improvement website, porch.com, analyzed year-over-year pet adoption and spending data, and here's what they found. Nationally, 2020 was actually a quieter year for shelters than in 2019. Overall, there were fewer intakes, so fewer animals entering the shelter, 1.3 million versus 2.29 million, and fewer adoptions, 750,000 versus 1 million. But when you look at the percentages, adoption rates were technically up. With 54% of shelter pets being adopted versus 51% in 2019. Now, keep in mind, those are nationwide numbers. All around the states, there are even some stronger adoption rate numbers than that. For instance, in Connecticut, 89%, that's almost nine out of 10 cats and dogs that entered animal shelters in Connecticut since the start of the pandemic were adopted. In Rhode Island and New Hampshire, the adoption rates were at 82% and 80% respectively, meaning every four out of five animals that were taken into shelters found a home since the COVID pandemic broke out. And as for spending, Porch says they've seen some strong evidence from Chewy and TD Ameritrade that pet spending is on the rise. For example, Chewy, and for those of you who don't know, they're actually a publicly traded offshoot of PetSmart, recorded their highest ever revenues in 2020, peaking with a whopping $1.7 billion in the third quarter of 2020. That's 48% more than Americans spent on pet supplies with this retailer than in the same quarter of 2019. There's some serious growth here. And as per the TD Ameritrade data, dog owners outspent cat owners in every category. Dog owners spent $1,021 annually Cat owners spend $687 annually. The top categories for both cat and dog owners are food, veterinary care, and grooming. Okay, you're listening to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Don't go away. More with the show right after the break. Animals Today fun facts for today are about prairie dogs. Despite their name, prairie dogs are not dogs, but members of the rodent family, like squirrels. They grow to be between 12 and 17 inches in length, and they weigh between 2 and 4 pounds. Prairie dogs are very social rodents that live in huge underground burrows called towns, where they can be tens of thousands of prairie dogs, and their tunnels can travel for miles in every direction. Prairie dogs are very affectionate towards each other and will spend a lot of time grooming each other. They will also touch noses when they approach each other like a little kid. And these are your Animals Today Fun Facts for the Day.
4: Hi everyone, this is Matt Ellerbeck and I'm a scorpion naturalist and conservationist. As such, you may have guessed that this Animals Today Minute is on scorpions. These animals are often feared because they are venomous and many individuals are scared of being stung. However, did you know scorpions can regulate how much venom they inject during a sting? Scorpions have venom as a means to quickly kill or immobilize prey. Therefore, scorpions control how much venom they inject during a sting as the venom is crucial to obtaining a meal. If the scorpion depletes all of its venom, it will take several days to restock the supply. Due to these facts, scorpions may not want to waste their valuable venom during defensive stings, such as on humans. Stings occur in which no venom is injected at all. These are called dry stings. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today.
0: Welcome back to the show. Peter, February 15th, National Hippopotamus Day. Really? So let's learn some fascinating facts about hippos. Hippos are mostly herbivores, semi-aquatic mammals, usually inhabiting shallow rivers, lakes, and swamps, and are native to sub-Saharan Africa. Peter, the name hippopotamus comes from the ancient Greek what? Ancient Greek. Ancient Greek. Yep. Wow. A, river horse. B, swamp cow. Or sea, water, elephant. I'm going to say uh, river horse. Yes. But hippos are not related to horses at all. In fact, their closest living relatives seem to be whales. True or false? Hippos are considered the second largest land animal on Earth.
2: I'm going to say that's true.
0: True. The largest is? The elephant. Very good. I'm going to give you credit for that question since (laughs) hippos are listed by many to be the second largest land animal. According to Animal Planet, they are the third largest after elephants and white rhinos. Mm. True or false? Hippos can outrun a human. I have a feeling that's true. Easily. Oh, boy. You know that they have short legs and sort of a stocky built, and you might think they shouldn't be able to run that fast, but over short distances, hippos can run at speeds of 18 to 31 miles per hour. That
2: must be a sight.
0: And This is not an animal you're going to want to hug, although, have you seen the baby hippos? You you sort of want to hug a baby hippo. Yeah, very cute. Anyway, hippos can be very aggressive animals, often regarded as one of the most dangerous animals in Africa. Hippos lack scent and sweat glands, so to stay cool, hippos spend most of their days in rivers and lakes. Their eyes, nose, and ears are located on the top of their head so they can see and breathe while still being submerged in the water. When completely submerged, their ears and nostrils fold shut to keep water out. True or false, hippos need to resurface every four to five minutes to breathe.
2: Uh, Okay, uh, true. It is true. This is an
0: automatic process, and even sleeping hippos surface to breathe without waking. So it's automatic. In African rivers, hippos look like floating islands with birds fishing from their backs. Turtles and even baby crocodiles have been seen sunning themselves on hippos. There's this myth that hippos sweat blood. Have you heard about that? Nope. You want to guess where that came from? Oh, that came from the ancient Greeks? No, I meant, you know what gave rise to this myth? Oh, I don't know. Okay, they secrete this liquid and it's an oily red substance and it makes them look like they're sweating blood. But it's actually a skin moisturizer and a sunblock and also might serve to protect them from germs. Yeah. Female hippos are called what? Mares, cows... Or hippas.
2: Uh, How about cows?
0: Cows are correct. The females give birth every two years, usually to a single calf. Male hippo is called what? Man hippo? Stallion? No, no. Or bull? A bull. Bull is correct. Hippos typically live in groups, and the dominant males are very protective over their group. You've seen how huge a hippo can open their mouths, right? Well, they are displaying their long, curved, sharp teeth, and they often open their mouths to warn off rival males. They also make loud grunts and aggressive splashes in the water. In fact, hippos are one of the noisiest animals in Africa. True or false,
2: hippos are Wait, I was listening. Uh, They are uh, predominantly herbivores.
0: Yes, this was a test question to see if you were listening, because I had already mentioned the herbivores, so this question was to make sure you were paying attention. They are most active at night where they forage for food like grass. In the wild, hippos live for up to how many years?
2: Okay, and my choices are, I'll just say, how about 40 years?
0: 40 is correct. Now, their predators include crocodiles, lions, and hyenas, and sadly... And of course, like so many of our magnificent non-human animal species, populations have declined and they are endangered mainly due to hunting for their meat or ivory in their teeth. And another major threat is habitat loss.
2: Yes, we've heard that tune before.
0: Yep. Scientists in Florida are studying if it's safe to eat pythons. And if it is safe, python might be a new menu item in Florida restaurants. As you probably know, Burmese pythons are invasive species in the Everglades and have posed a risk to native wildlife in southern Florida. Pythons are not native to the state and began appearing in the Everglades in the 1980s. Why? Because of people, ignorant humans, who decided it would be a good idea to get a python as a pet. Ignorant humans, that's a redundant statement. That's (laughs) funny. And then they realize that their baby python grows to be 20 feet long, so they release it. So these pythons are escaped or purposely released pets, and they're everywhere in the Everglades. Pythons are non-venomous. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission encourages residents to remove and humanely kill pythons when they can at any time during the year and to report any sightings to officials. There is a Python elimination program, which has already removed 6,000 pythons from the Everglades. One of the program's Python hunters, Donna Khalil, said, when pythons are safe to eat, they can actually be quite delicious. Khalil is the first female hunter in the python removal program, according to Kirkland, and she has so far captured and euthanized 473 pythons. She uses a mercury test kit she bought online to confirm that they're safe to eat. She then turns their white meat into food. First, she uses a pressure cooker to make the meat soft and tender. Later, she adds pasta sauce, chili, or stir fry. She also likes turning the snakes into jerky. She says, It's really good when you cook it right, Khalil told CNN. This would be a wonderful way to get more people involved with helping us remove pythons from the environment. It would be a good thing for people to hunt and eat them, but we need to make sure they're safe first. Mm. Anyway, Florida scientists are looking at mercury levels in the snakes to determine if they can be safely consumed. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission says if they can determine pythons are safe to eat, it would help control their population.
2: Whole thing is so unfortunate, and and uh, really sad. I mean, it's true these invasive uh, species are ruining, have ruined the Everglades, and the little mammals are gone pretty much. And then uh, if you're gonna, you can't relocate the snakes. We've talked about that. There's nowhere for them to go. So if you accept that they need to be killed, then eating them, I guess. Is, justifiable on some level but the whole enterprise gives me the willies yeah. besides the mercury I didn't know they concentrated mercury or is that just like uh, trying to figure that out now yeah that's a good
0: know. point and for the Wildlife Conservation Commission to encourage people to quote humanely kill the pythons I, you can't give free range of just go ahead and kill these these yeah. animals yeah. humanely you, everyone has a different
2: definition right. technique right. And, uh, Yeah. oh it's too bad
0: And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.